0: So hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and I'm here with... No, Rami's not here. Well, I'm here with Heather... No, she's not here. And Adam isn't here, and Tiffany isn't here. I guess I'm alone today. Okay, actually, this was planned. This is a solo episode, and it's an experiment. First off, I have no idea whether a solo episode will even work. I have no idea whether I'm capable of carrying an episode on my own, Uh, I've actually tried this once before, a couple months ago with the same movie, and I found that because I didn't have someone to talk to, I had trouble focusing, and we'll try it again. I've done this twice before. We did that joke episode, but I had a script for that, and then I did that How We Make It, but I had sort of a point for point. So this may work, it may not. If you're listening to it, I I guess it worked well enough. So so today we're doing uh, Transformers the movie, and this premiered on the 8th of August, 1986, and it was directed by Nelson Shin and written by Ron Friedman. And it's got quite the cast. Uh, Peter Cullen, who did, who did Optimus Prime. He still does Optimus Prime. Uh, Frank Welker, who did Megatron, Soundwave, Rumble, Frenzy, Ravage. Eric Idle from uh, Monty Python.
1: Always look on the bright side of life.
0: <whistles> Casey Kasem is Cliff Jumper. Uh, some of you may be more uh, familiar with Casey Kasem as a, uh,
1: a radio DJ. Hello again, and welcome to American Top 40. My name is Casey Kasem, and this is the show that lets you know what songs America is listening to.
0: Uh, John Moshida, who did Blur, he used to do those uh, FedEx commercials back in the 80s. Okay, Eunice, travel plans, I need
1: to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday, got it? Got it. Got it.
0: <laughs> the actor Judd Nelson, um, who did Hot Rod, Leonard Nimoy, Orson Welles in his noted last role,
1: we know now that in the early years of the 20th century this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's.
0: Robert Stack who you might remember from Unsolved Mysteries but I mostly remember him as captain uh, who's called in to advise on the impending plane disaster in the movie Airplane. Now one hope is to build this man up and that give him all the
1: confidence I can. Stryker, you ever fallen a motor engine plane before? No, never.
0: Shit! It's
1: a goddamn waste of the time. There's no way you can land this plane. Have all of yourself.
0: And Lionel Stander, who was sort of a character actor from the wow, going back I think to the '40s. So it's quite the it's quite the cast. Uh, the movie was made on a budget of six million bucks, which is a problem because it only made five point eight five million. It was uh, it was a loss for the studio. Which is kind of a shame because it was a, it was a hell of a film. It was really just designed to bridge the I think it was the second to third season of the Transformers cartoon, and you know they made a GI Joe film at the same time. But because Transformers kind of bit it at the theaters, GI Joe I think it was delayed a year. It was put out on um, on television. And that was probably a good choice because it was an awful film. This one, on the other hand, it's one of my favorite films. Uh, no one can ever tell me there's anything imperfect about it. It's a pure it's a pure thing in my mind. Of course now I'm going to go tear it apart for you. So the first time I saw this, I remember quite specifically, uh, because it came out in August of 86, this was the uh, summer between grade 5 and grade 6, and my parents had decided that my sister and I were going to go and spend two or three weeks in Toronto with my grandmother, which is exactly as exciting as it sounds. Uh, I got to hang out with a lot of relatives I didn't really know and still really don't, and my grandmother, who is not exactly a party type, And yeah, I came home uh, sort of pissed off that uh, I had missed this film. All my friends had seen it. So I convinced my parents to take us. Uh, My sister sort of went along. I don't think she was a big Transformers fan, but she went. And I remember distinctly that the theater we went to was one of these one screen theaters, which these days is a rarity. I don't think there are any left in the city that aren't like art house theaters. And... Uh, I remember very distinctly that there was like the concessions counter, and then on either side of it, these two curving staircases that went up and behind the counter, and then you went down into the theater. So yeah, the theater itself was, was pretty huge. Uh, I remember that it was you know, it was filled with kids and their parents, and about 10, 15 minutes into the film, all the parents left. Uh, my parents were in the lobby of the theater uh, with all the other parents, smoking, yes, this was 1986, because the movie was brutally loud. This is a loud movie. It has loud music. I know my parents weren't really happy with that. It's not like they were going to drag us out of the theater, but they didn't want to listen to the sorts of music that was in this, which is a lot of, I won't say heavy metal, but uh, hair bands, um, power bells, that sort of thing. You know, it was. I mean, I enjoyed it. The film was. It had a, it had a trailer which was like the world's most unsubtle trailer.
1: It is the year two thousand five, mm-hmm. and a new evil mm-hmm. threatens the galaxy the most incredible adventure you've ever seen. Transformers the movie. Prime. Does Prime die? Then who would lead the Autobot? And what is the secret of the Monster Planet? It's so big, so exciting, you've got to see it twice to take it all in. Transformers the movie. Printed PG. Open to the theaters everywhere in three days.
0: And as you can hear, yeah, does Prime die? Gee, I don't know. Does he? Hmm, I wonder why they would ask that. But I mean, it was a 1986 trailer. Where the, you know, trailers were much less advanced, much less of an art form. And let's be honest, it was aimed at kids who played with toys. When I saw it, I, I was really impressed. I loved it. You know, it was a huge step up from the cartoon in every way. That you know, the visuals were better. The music blew me away. Uh, the soundtrack, especially, even to this day, is what stands out most for me. Uh, I own the soundtrack on uh, audio cassette, and then a second audio cassette when the first one wore out. And then uh, when the second one wore out, my parents would not buy me a third, so I had to find someone at school who had it, and I made a copy of that, and eventually I got it on CD, and now I have it digitally. And I even made a point of tracking down Till All Are One, which is the special CD of the instrumentation, as opposed to the songs, which is what the soundtrack was, with, I think... The Autobot Decepticon battle and the death of Optimus Prime; those were the only instrumentation pieces on the soundtrack. But Till All or One had all of them, and that came from a, a believe it or not a live performance done by the guys who did the music. They had done it at this uh, s- uh, this Transformers convention called BotCon, and you had to, you know, he's you know the, the musician has you know posted on his website, hey, like who would pay for this if I pressed CDs? And I said, yeah, I would, and a bunch of others did, and I think they cranked out like five or six thousand of these things and I got one. It was like 40 bucks. It was wicked expensive and totally worth it. Uh still an amazing soundtrack. And so yeah. So let's start this movie and see what we get. So the first thing we see right off the bat is that the animation is a cut above. There are layers. Uh, The shadowing is much deeper. The um the, the mixture of colors is different. There's sort of a glowing effect to some of the to some of the animation to give you the idea that sort of energy is coursing through things. And the first thing we see, of course, is, is Unicron passing by a sun and then right by the camera, and it's sort of like the uh, opening shot of the original Star Wars, Episode four to you youngins, in which the Star Destroyer passes right in front of the camera, and it's meant to sort of communicate size. Uh, in this case, it's not a Star Destroyer. It's essentially a moon, and it's a pretty scary looking thing. It's this, you know, this big planet with a, an outer ring. There's a lot of spiky things. And we see what at first I think you're meant to think is Cybertron. It's sort of this metallic city. You know, it's clearly it was once a sort of a, a natural moon. You can actually see where the the crust hasn't been built over yet, and there's all this lava. And this is this is to say it's way more visual detail than I'm used to from the cartoons. You know, and 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 sort of we, you see this very quickly that okay, this isn't Cybertron. This is a you know Cybertron is a wreck. It's a war zone. It's mostly abandoned. It's occupied by the well, the few Decepticons who were left behind when both the Autobots and Decepticons left for Earth, or the you know, Autobots left for Earth and the Decepticons uh, raided their ship and they all went up crashed, and that was the first two seasons. Here, this is clearly a thriving Cybertron-like city, and you see robots that are kids, which I don't get, but whatever, you're meant to see a thriving metropolis. And very quickly, there is Unicron. <laughs> During these opening scenes, you really get this this sort of this sort of terrifying, jarring you know scene play out where Unicron, a planet with freaking jaws uh, like pincers, like almost like a how would you call it, like pincers like an ant sort of latches on to this entire planet and people are being sucked out, and you are literally watching the death of what I would assume is billions of intelligent sentient beings, and only a few man you know managed to escape these two I guess you would call them lifeboats slash rockets take off one of them you know is pulled back in and and you see it's it's destroyed and you see inside unicron you're watching it chew up and and, and kill this is a kid's cartoon um like it, it's just a kid's cartoon and yet you are seeing right off the bat the death of millions I'm often you know I'm often reminded of Akira, a film I don't like, but you know I saw it and remember you know it starts off with the death of twenty million and moves on from there. But in Japan, ultra-violent cartoons and, and not violent for violence sake, just violence because it's just the way it was. Those were much more common. Certainly in North America, that was not the case. Which is another thing to note about the anima- animation. It's well, it's the same as the Transformers cartoon. It's got a slightly anime-ish vibe, which I think is because it was made in Japan. Another thing is even the music, you know, when you're introduced to, the, to this planet, um, of, I think it's called Lithon or Lipton or what, whatever, I mean, the, the, the one, the last survivor, Kranix, he sort of mumbles, you know, the music is very sort of cheery and happy, and then it's like Armageddon music. It's kind of scary. So we don't know what Unicron is other than it's a planet that eats planets in a, in a terrifying way. So I'm at the point now where Unicron makes contact with this planet and literally these jaws... Sort of grab hold of the planet. I'd forgotten how much bigger Unicron is than this this planet, and it literally it sort of grabs hold of it. And you're seeing from like the ground, from the ground's view, like from the the view of these these robots, these terrible jaws grab hold and just destroying everything. You know the buildings, the people in their in their path, and you know it. It's a light is emanating emanating from. Unicron's maw and it's this terrible red light like it's a real Armageddon scenario. It's quite terrifying for kids uh, much more so than I think even I remember. It's been a few years since I've seen this. You know, and the one thing with this, uh, you know, this one lifeboat that doesn't escape. I mean, you hear the person scream. You know, and he gets pulled back in and then we sort of follow the ship through the sort of the jaws of the beast as it's chewed up and again, it's it's terrifying. And what we immediately see is that this is how Unicron gains his or its energy. Because we see, you know, the the gears speed up and things start to, you know, we,
1: we,
0: Unicron lights up, the, the artificial ring around his planet starts to glow. Clearly this is uni- how Unicron feeds himself. He consumes entire planets. Unicron is very different than, you know, sort of, planet-destroying apparatuses you see in, in other science fiction, like, for instance, the Death Star or Killer Base in Star Wars. The Death Star, you, you know, they had to sort of strip mine a planet of kyber crystals, you know, the lightsaber-powering things, and so there's an act of destruction in order to use it to destroy planets, and Killer Base damn near kills a star in order to destroy, whereas... Unicron, you get the impression, is just sort of part of the cycle of life. This is like the circle of life with scary lions. Uh, (laughs) uh, I don't think this is what uh, Simba had in mind. Uh, Certainly not what Disney had in mind. Uh, But yes, it's destroying a planet, but it's bringing life to itself. So it's almost like it's part of some sort of robotic galactic ecosystem. It's kind of weird, but interesting. And then we get the theme music. Now, the theme music for the original Transformers was very much what you'd expect from an '80s cartoon. It's, it's not a rock ballad, but it's kind of a, it's not a chirpy happy tune from the, that you'd hear from the f- '60s or '70s, like Scooby Doo or something like that. <laughs> Transformers.
1: To the of the the
0: and then the mu- the version they have here is sort of like this again i won't say hard rock but kind of this hairband 80s rock power ballad version is an alternate version from Till All R1, which is this one. so then we see what is clearly Cybertron it's it's much more familiar and we get the narrator we've heard before and he sort of catches us up because remember this was a movie that was made in 1985 and yet we hear this it is the
1: year 2005 the treacherous Decepticons have conquered the Autobots home planet of Cybertron From secret staging grounds on two of Cybertron's moons, the valiant Autobots prepare to retake their homeland.
0: So this is interesting because, you know, the whole point of the the whole premise of the first two seasons is that the Autobots had abandoned Cybertron because it was out of energy. Uh, The Decepticons followed. They left behind Shockwave, who was a transformable laser gun, and, uh, you know, generic Decepticon minions to sort of I guess you could say, lord over a wreck of Cybertron, whereas the rest of the Transformers wound up on Earth, or they wound up crashing into a mountain because they were fighting, and lo and behold, there was a planet in the way, and they crashed. And then, you know, the first two seasons were very much about trying to get enough energy to build a ship to get back to Cybertron. And, you know, they sort of manage it a few times. It's one of those standard... Cartoon uh, tropes where they try and they almost get there but never quite and they try again but almost get there but never manage it and somehow clearly in the last 20 years the Decepticons have found a way and of course because the Decepticons or the Autobots abandoned Cybertron the Decepticons have taken control which is interesting and the Autobots have clearly become sort of a guerrilla force in their own home uh, there on these moons but you know of course, while the, uh, you know, the narrator is telling us this, we're seeing, <laughs> we're seeing Laserbeak fly to one of the moons. So clearly it can't be much of a secret location if your, your little cassette scout can fly there and observe these people. So Optimus Prime isn't the brilliant planner we thought he was. And there's a, there's an, there's a funny exchange here, and I've always laughed at it. And this is uh, Optimus Prime and Ironhide talking to each other. So see if you catch the problem, and I'll explain what it is to you after the clip.
1: Every time I look into a monitor, Prime, my circuit sizzle. When are we going to start busting deceptive chops? I want you to make a special run to Autobot City on Earth. But, pram, Listen, Ironhide, we don't have enough energon cubes to power a full-scale assault.
0: Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, it's the same actor doing both voices, and instead of taking uh, you know five minutes to cut the the recording such that it sounds like Optimus Prime is interrupting Ironhide, which is what it is. Clearly, Peter Cullen had just read both parts, and because it takes a second to you know to sort of take a breath and change your voice to go from Optimus Prime to Ironhide, it sounds really clumsy. When all they had to do was sort of cut that half second or quarter second or whatever it is of sound to sound like character Optimus Prime was interrupting Ironhide as opposed to Peter Cullen having to interrupt himself.
1: It's
0: always sort of bothered me as a little bit clumsy, but again, pure movie, perfect, never, no mistakes at all. Absolutely.
1: Listen, Ironhide.
0: Another thing I notice is that they, they're sort of, you know, on this moon which clearly has no oxygen the sound engineers have made a point made a point of giving them sort of this echo i guess maybe the idea being that they're not communicating using uh, sound waves they're communicating using whatever autobots talk about because of course not even cybertron has a as an atmosphere uh, i like that they took that extra that extra bit of effort it's the same thing with the, all the production values of this movie they just add a little more it's a little more shadow a little more thought put into the camera work a little more detail uh, you know displays glow things like that. I, I, that I think it's why visually I like this movie so much is that it's such a step up from the cartoon and as always the music is fabulous and it's at this point we're actually reintroduced to Spike who was kind of sort of in the live action movies played by Shia LaBeouf or LaBeouf or whatever he is Spike in the original was a sort of a I won't say a teenager, but in, you know, maybe his late teens, early twenties. He and his father, who only ever goes by his nickname Sparkplug, were kind of these oil rig workers who encountered the Autobots in you know, like the the original pilot episode, and sort of worked as advisors to the Autobots on how to behave on Earth, and they act as sort of as spies. Now here, you know, it's twenty years later. Spike is. You know, clearly in his late 30s, early 40s, uh, it's a different actor, obviously, and we have no idea where the father of Sparkplug is. But Spike in the cartoon was always an interesting character. He wasn't the goofball that Shia was. You know, he wasn't paid by the syllable. He wasn't a spaz. He was just this like interesting guy who was trying to help out. And as I recall going forward into the next season of the cartoon, Spike remained... he, he remained interesting. The cool thing is, is that we learn that Carly... We'll learn this later in the series that Carly, who was sort of his love interest, you know, as much as a kids' cartoon is going to show that he, she, and Spike have produced a kid, Daniel, who's kind of the focus of the focus of this movie. You know, so at this point we see that Prowl and Ironhide and Brawn and a few others have hopped into a vessel, which looks exactly like the Ark, the ship that that took the Autobots away from Cybertron at the beginning of the series. Clearly, they've either built another one or. They rebuilt. You know, I don't think they re- they repurposed the one uh, that they crashed in because it was you know lodged in the side of a mountain for like two million years or hundred million years or something like that. You know, so clearly things have gotten better for the Autobots as well, and so they're heading off to Earth, and obviously this requires you know an actual starship to do it. And of course, you know we see you know Laserbeak obviously watched all this. It watched the argument between uh, Prime and Ironhide. It watched the takeoff of this vessel, and it goes back to report. And this is where we're sort of immediately reminded that Megatron and Starscream, who is kind of one of his lieutenants, they have a history. Uh, they don't like each other. They, they conflict. Laserbeak returns, Megatron. Welcome, Laserbeak. Unlike some of my other warriors, you never fail me. And it's interesting because there is more complexity in the, the relationship between Megatron and Starscream in just that one relationship than in any of the characters or any of the character relationships in any of those crappy Michael Bay films. Just in this kid's cartoon between the main bad guy and one of his lieutenants. And here's that, here's that complexity. In the cartoon, Megatron is a gun. And when he transforms, instead of being a you know a full size robot, he is a, a gun that can be held by another transformer. And here's the irony of that. When he transforms, Megatron can kill a transformer with one shot, that's how powerful he is. The thing is, he can't fire himself. Someone he has to be in the hands of another, presumably Decepticon, uh, to be fired. So here's the irony: Starscream wants to rule the Decepticons, and he's ambitious and he's 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 highly intelligent, but he's not. He doesn't have the savvy to rule. He certainly can't outsmart Megatron, who is uh, the sort of leader he knows how to stay in charge, mostly by keeping everyone picking at each other uh, so they're too busy to, to challenge him and they're scared of him even if they do. The thing is is that Starscream is a great warrior and he is the most capable Decepticon in terms of handling Megatron as a gun. So here's the grand irony of their relationship. The most powerful Decepticon, Megatron, in order to be his most powerful as his transformed gun, must put himself in the hands of a Decepticon who is most likely to hurt him? So to be his most powerful, Megatron must be his most powerless in the hands of Starscream, the last guy you want to have you, because who knows, maybe he's gonna blow away all the competition. Of course, you know, Megatron can retransform, but still, it's it's that irony of to be his most powerful, Megatron must give up his his control and his power. It's kind of a neat dichotomy. So Megatron gets to see the surveillance video, and he hears, you know, he hears Megatron, he hears uh, Optimus Prime say, you know, now we just need some luck. And Megatron says, more than you can imagine. And this is where all fucking hell breaks loose. The Decepticons bust into the arc, and Megatron transforms into his gun into the hands of Starscream. Decepticons, die, Aggelman! And holy hell, people start dying. And, and by the, the admission of the writers like for the 20th anniversary of the, uh, of the movie, they put out this great uh, DVD with all sorts of extras, and they said, we had no idea kids would take it so personally that we were killing off these characters. We just wanted to clear the deck so we could introduce new toys. So in the meantime, what happens? Brawn is gone. He just takes it in the shoulder, and he's dead. Like, he literally just, he's a smoking hulk, he falls over. And then we see Prowl, you know, he sort of comes, he turns around from his seat at the command console, and he fires and he misses, and one of the Constructicons blows him away. And it's a little scary, again, for a kid, you see Prowl's eyes sort of turn off because he has sort of these eyes that light up and they just sort of go dark and there's smoke coming out of his mouth and he just collapses, you know, and then Ratchet who's the medic and Ironhide who you know, actually they're, it's both the same toy, they're essentially both, they look like these uh, European vans, the Westphalia van you can look that up except one's, uh, you know, Ironhide's red and Ratchet is done up like a uh, an ambulance, they both start firing, both double-fisted and they just get rocked and tons of fire and they just both go down and it's really kind of gruesome you know so in the space of 30 seconds so what's happened four you know four characters of, of varying importance to the series and varying screen time have just been slaughtered it's pretty horrible and of course it ends with you know with Megatron literally using his sort of his arm cannon to put a hole in Ironhide and execute him it's it's it's, it's kind of shocking for a cartoon actually
1: When we slip by their early warning systems in their own shuttle and destroy Autobot City, the Autobots will be vanquished forever! No! Such heroic nonsense!
0: And so now you have these Decepticons in charge of the Autobot Ark, and of course they haven't had a chance to get off a signal. And so, of course, we know things are about to get much worse. And then suddenly we're on Earth. They never quite explain where on Earth, but, you know, it's a nice sort of mountain setting. And we're introduced to Daniel, Spike's kid, and a new Autobot named Hot Rod, played by Judd Nelson. Fish are jumping today, huh, Dano? I guess so. Hey, what's the matter?
1: Uh, I don't know, Hot Rod.
0: Come on, you can tell me.
1: guess I just miss my dad.
0: And I don't imagine for a minute that Judd Judd Nelson was intended to carry on in, uh, or voicing the character in the television show. I mean, this was the mid '80s. Uh, Judd Nelson was still super popular, and of course, because it's you know the far future of 2005, uh, Daniel is wearing some sort of space-age jumpsuit with a D on his chest, just in case we forget his name is Daniel. And the, and the funny thing is, is they're fishing, and you know, Daniel's got a normal human size fishing rod, and Hot Rod's got a, you know, transformer-sized fishing rod, and when Daniel picks up a fish, it's like, wow, it's huge, and, you know, Hot Rod holds it up, and in his hands, it's this teeny little nothing. It's like, yeah, it's a whopper. It's And, of course, you know, Daniel, at this point, he gets the signal in his cool little pocket device and says, oh, you know, the the, the ship's coming in, and there's this really cool sequence with uh, a really great song called Dare, uh, but it, it, the animation for the sequence is really cool that Daniel gets on his, sort of his rocket hover hoverboard whatever and he's racing along in this valley and he smacks into a rock and as he's sort of tumbling uh, hot rod comes in behind him and says hey you know if you're going to ride ride in style he transforms daniel winds up inside the cockpit of this really super futuristic looking car and they they sort of drive off and it's this really really well filmed well okay well drawn sequence the cinematography is really really cool
1: Hot rod. The shuttle's coming. Let's watch it
0: land. Talk about dull, Daniel. Hurry, we all miss
1: it. I'm down for your whole set. All chat it. Do it with you. Wanna know how you if you're gonna ride, Dano, ride in style.
0: And we get to meet Cup, who clearly, at this point, in the in the few lines of dialogue we get, oh, young punk. Yeah, he's the old wizard veteran. We know all we need to know about Cup. Uh, and so they wind up on Lookout Mountain. So there is a Lookout Mountain, and it's in Georgia. So I wonder if Autobot City is in the the state of Georgia, uh, which is along the, I guess it's Lookout Mountain. So here's, what, here's what Google says. Uh, lookout Mountain is a mountain ridge located uh, at the northwest corner of the U.S. state of Georgia, the northeast corner of Alabama, along the Tennessee state line in Chattanooga. So that's kind of cool. So maybe that's where Autobot City is. I don't know. And at this point, Daniel sort of uses a uh, sort of one of these these tourist binocular setups, and you know clearly it's been put you know, it's been put there for him because he's the only human in what is clearly an Autobot settlement. I mean, you look at Autobot City; it's a city, and Lookout Mountain isn't just this ridge. Like they've built this massive Transformers-ish metal platform, and on the end of it, they've put for Daniel, clearly, and probably also for Spike when he's around, and I guess Carly, uh, though we don't see her in this movie, uh, they've put in this cool sort of tourist binocular thing, and it's neat. And he sort of looks up at the arc, which is sort of coming in for a landing, and he spots there's a hole in the shuttle. And and so here we have All Fucking Hell Breaks Loose, Take Two.
1: Hot Rod, look! There's a hole in the shuttle! What? And you can win if you're dead! Decepticon.
0: which is you know hot rod sort of these visors come down over his eyes it's sort of you know he allows him to zoom in he spots a hole in the side of the shuttle you know, he can see Starscream through it and he just he just starts firing on the ship, he blows it up, and out come the, the Decepticons, and they almost kill Daniel in the process because they shear the metal platform right off the cliff, and it becomes this race back to you know to, to the city. Now, the Battle of Autobot City, I, the battle itself is long. I think it's about ten minutes, fifteen minutes long, and it's pretty intense and you know, it starts off with hot rod with With Daniel inside, and Cup trying to get back into the city and having to deal with various Decepticons in their way. And at the same time, in the city, Ultra Magnus, who's Robert Stack's character again, this is a new character we're introduced with. He's also a big rig. Uh, He and the others are trying to rally a defense of the city, which is to transform it, which we see isn't a matter of yelling, transform. There's all sorts of pulleys and levers and things that have to be moved. It takes Two new characters, R.C., who's a female Transformer, which we've seen a few times in the series, and Springer, who is uh, sort of this super... He's, a, he's also a new character. He's sort of like this high-tech helicopter. It, it's quite the effort for them to transform it, and it's this horrific pitched battle. And at one point during the battle, we see uh, Wheeljack and Charger and I think a few others, their bodies being dragged in, so that they're dead, and we see the Insecticons are getting killed off, And, you know, at one point, Starscream is forced to shoot off his own foot rather gruesomely. Uh, I mean, I thought there's blood, but I mean, the guy, you know, he realizes he's about to be trapped beneath the, you know, a a panel of the transforming Autobot city. And he just realizes, oh, man, he blows his own foot off. That's pretty scary. Like, this is a serious pitch battle. The thing with Transformers is it was a lot like G.I. Joe, the cartoons. That everyone gets hit, but no one gets hurt. uh, Which was always really silly. And In in G.I. Joe, of course, everyone takes a shot to the shoulder and it's knocked out, but no one ever dies. Uh, It's most notable that after the violence of this film and the reaction to it, especially by by parents the one death in G.I. Joe the movie which is the death of Duke they had to edit out by the very very end of the film going uh, they had a I think it was a radio call hey I've just heard from base and Duke's gonna be okay and when and in the actual death scene I guess they had dubbed over oh he's fallen into a coma because the death and carnage and transformers the movie was so so pronounced especially can you know cartoon didn't see a single death and the movie were up to a dozen deaths by the first half hour they had to sort of back off on it, and, 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 you know, the Autobot, the Battle of Autobot City is just this absolute carnage. I remember showing this to a friend who'd never seen this before uh, because he's, you know, a generation too too young for this, and he was kind of horrified, like, like, this is a cartoon? It's like, yeah. This was made for kids? Yeah. Like, he was kind of shocked. It's, like, it's quite the battle to see, and I'm sure you could find just this on YouTube, but again, you know, you should absolutely go see this film if you haven't, but again, I have to ask, why are you listening to me if you haven't seen this film? One thing I will note about the battle is that there's some very cool cinematography. When Megatron shears the observation platform off Lookout Mountain, you know Hot Rod grabs Daniel and the camera, well, I guess they fall past the camera and we see Daniel screaming with his face and then we see Hot Rod's face like right up close it fills the screen and they land and then a transformer, who, a Decepticon whose name I cannot remember, except that he's a triple changer. So he sort of he flies in as a as his aircraft mode, transforms into his robot mode, and sort of in and looping behind him is one of the uh, one of the Insecticons, and it's just this really cool looking visual. Like it's it's a it's a fairly complex animation for this time. I mean, this movie cost. What was it six times more than an average ninety minute cartoon like they really put the they really put the money into paying good animators and I really appreciate that. It's it's a gorgeous movie to watch. Even if you don't like Transformers, watch it for the cinematography. You know, so anyway, you know this 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 robot he turns into the tank and you can see him targeting Daniel and and Hot Rod and then in comes Cup who transforms into his you know high tech looks like a pickup truck who races underneath or beside the tank's barrel transforms into his robot and sort of like an Olympian grabs hold of it spins over the top of the tank uh, gun plants his feet on top of the tank and bends the barrel so that he misses uh hot rod it's just the whole scene's very cool unfortunately it goes wrong when the the miss the miss aimed shot strikes the Insecticon who had just passed him and and that Incepticon, insecticon, I think it's a cockroach, bounces somehow manages to fall underneath the tank and flip the tank over and send them flying. Which you know, like, like that's that's a physics issue that doesn't work, and it's it's really clumsy looking. There's one of the two of these in the movie, and it really, it's like I couldn't think of a better way to animate that. I mean, I guess it's a neat thing, but it just it doesn't it doesn't work the way they filmed it, and it's it's, yeah, it just. This beautiful piece of cinematography ends so clumsily, and it kind of drives me nuts. Another thing I'll note is characterization. So we're, we're reintroduced to a character named Perceptor, who was a really cool toy. It was he was literally a a microscope, and obviously the character was a. Uh, A scientist. It was an actual microscope. Okay, like you weren't going to be looking at blood cells. It was a shitty $15 toy. Okay, it wasn't shitty. They were actually really well-built toys. So it was a really well-built toy, but it was just a toy. It wasn't like you were going to use this in science class, but just the idea that Hasbro was trying to promote a little bit of science. So obviously he's a, a scientist, but he was very normal talking. In the movie, he sounds like this...
1: Ultra Magnus, a cursory evaluation of Decepticon capability indicates a distinct tactical deficiency.
0: So it's sort of like this technobabble and I don't get that at all and it sort of turned an interesting character into a caricature which kind of bothers me. One more thing about the city battle I guess I'll notice because I'm just sort of watching this as I talk. The sound is much deeper. Explosions have a lot of to them they kind of rumble like you you really get the feeling that holy hell this is a battle it's not just a light show it's like a serious battle there is damage being taken it's not just that there's a body count it's that I I used to be in the army I've been in in I've never been in combat to be clear uh but I've been in plenty of exercises and uh, explosions have a Bite to them. They have a bark and a bite, and it's all about the sound. It it it, it sort of rattles you, and they're trying their best, as, you know, as best they can in a cartoon, to give you that feeling like this deep rumble like this. What's
1: that darn fool doing?
0: And of course we get to see RC and she's a female Autobot she's skinny she's got a human female form to her and of course she's pink yeah and then you have Blur he's the guy from the FedEx commercials and then later the Micro Machine commercials those are these tiny little uh they were meant to be like a competitor to Hot Wheels but they were they could fit you could fit them on a quarter they were cute and and he was sort of their spokesman and he talks really really fast and so what is Blur oh he talks really really fast
1: we got Decepticons in the case Decepticons in the
0: that's his character. He talks really, really fast. It's kind of disappointing because in the first two seasons, we get a lot of characters who may have one or two, one or two really primary attributes that we know them by. You know, Ironhide is a hothead, but he's very aggressive. Uh, Mirage is very quiet and is a pacifist, but will fight when he needs to. Things like that. But it's seen by you know they decided that the new generation of transformers would be well one would be gentle because she's a girl and another would be a tough hero type because he was big and strong and another would talk really fast and and and, and the ones they were going to keep like perceptor would be all would be about the technobabble and cup would be the old crotchety man it's like it's like between the second and third season they had changed writers and they'd gotten less complex i found that very disappointing it's probably one of the reasons i stopped watching the show you know other things to note uh, you know that we see that one of the insecticons the one who plays the grasshopper we see his her I, 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 we'll, we'll go with him see his head get crushed and it's like wow like that's <laughs> that's kind of gruesome you know his head is literally crushed under the tire of uh, of cup and of course it's all metal but you gads yeah, And of course, we're also introduced to Blaster, who's like the Autobot version of Soundwave, the cassette recorder. And here he's, uh, I guess in the States, it's called a boombox. I, as a kid, called it a ghetto blaster, just sort of a big stereo. And it's the same thing. He's, you know, he's got sort of secondary characters who are cassettes who are with him. And, you know, again, the new characters all have like this one attribute and Blaster's attribute is He's black. (laughs) You know, at this point, we get we get to see sort of this neat little battle with Preceptor and Blaster and Blaster's, you know, cassettes versus Soundwave's cassettes, who've been sent to stop the request for help. Soundwave, jam that transmission. Rumble frenzy,
1: ravage rapid. Inject operation interference.
0: That Blaster's been sending out, and it's it's kind of funny because, the, of course, the cassette transformers are kind of tiny but they're tough and it's it, it makes for an interesting uh, it makes for an interesting battle you know the one thing they re- they do really well in the uh, the battle for autobot city is they show how desperate it is like you see bangled bodies and, and people being forced to abandon their friends and trying to at one point they try to move an artillery piece which looks I don't know what it's meant to look like, some sort of weird slingshot that they don't have time to realign. They've got to push it by hand, which is kind of ridiculous, but whatever. You get the impression that Autobot City was not quite ready to to take a hit, and it has, and so it's this desperate defense that is not going well for the Autobots. Like at every at every stage of this battle it's clear the Decepticons are winning. Yes, they are taking casualties, but the Autobots are taking much more so. And this is where we're reintroduced to Devastator. Uh, he was the first of the Combiner Transformers. Like they had the Constructicons, they looked like construction vehicles, and there was five of them, and they trans they sort of linked into big one large robot. And Devastator was always presented as sort of yeah, he's bigger, but he's no big deal. But here, through the the voice, Prepare for
1: extermination!
0: It's clear he's pretty terrifying, and you know the Autobots are clearly much more scared of him now than they were in the series. They've made him a serious menace. Another clumsy thing I'm just noting is that the Grasshopper Insecticon, who had his head so gruesomely crushed, is seems to be back in the action. And I guess this is the nature of so you have different teams drawing different parts of the film, and clearly whoever drew you know the the, the team in charge of drawing. Cup and Hot Rod's re-entry to the city where they crushed the head of the, the Grasshopper. Did not communicate that to the people who who did the devastator scene because there's Grasshopper guy, and his head looks fine. So that's I'm catching inconsistencies I've never noticed before. And of course, the next morning, you know, you get Megatron declaring, you know, the defenses are broken, let the slaughter begin. Like, wow, they're not they're not pulling any punches. And at that moment, in another arc. Prime arrives with Sunstreak and the Dinobots and sort of the, I guess you call it the third act of this battle is about to commence and this is sort of the famous scene with You Got the Touch uh, which my understanding is the song was originally made for the really bad Stallone film, Cobra and then wasn't used so they used it here but it's like, it's essentially Optimus Prime's theme song
1: at this point Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost you got the, touch. You got the power.
0: Yeah. and so of course this sort of sh- this plays out probably one of the best quote-unquote filmed uh, visualized scenes in the entire movie which is to the music you got the touch optimus prime racing in and just the first, the first Decepticon he hits, we see, we see his you know, horrified face reflected in Prime's grill, and then Prime transforms, and he's flying through the air and shooting as he goes, and he's just gunning down Decepticons one after the other, and then he bumps into Megatron.
1: Prime, one shall stand, one shall fall. Why throw away your life so recklessly? that's a question you should ask yourself megatron now i'll crush you with my bare hands
0: and of course it's a really brutal fight it's it's more brutal than any that megatron and optimus prime have ever had and by the time it's effectively over megatron is on his knees his face is actually shattered i mean it's metal but sort of the, the sort of this cowl he has around his head is actually shattered you know, Prime is, he's got this gouge in his side, like like there's, there's actual damage being, being inflicted on them, and of course, you know, we realize that, you know, Megatron, who's on his knees, is begging for his life, but it's only because, unbeknownst to Prime, you know, he spotted a, a gun, and like a pistol, and Hot Rod tries to get involved to stop Megatron from getting the gun. There's, you know, there's some confusion, and Prime takes several shots with this horrible... this really horrible gun that seems to be just lying around and it just guts prime and that's it he's done interestingly enough megatron isn't really in any better shape he takes a horrible hit to the chest and falls like five stories and he's this mess and he has to beg to be taken along when starscream finally calls a retreat it's kind of pathetic
1: astro transform and get us out of here uh, don't leave me, Soundwave. As you command me to train.
0: The retreat is kind of interesting because, you know, the Astro Train is, well, a robot and space shuttle and a train. And, you know, he transforms into a train without a track, but whatever. Uh, and sort of the back hatch opens up and all these sort of exhausted, wounded Decepticons start staggering towards it. They're carrying their dead comrades clearly they are mangled yes they've won this battle but just barely it's you know they haven't conquered the city but everything but and it's you know like i said it's it's a pretty horrific battle all said and done and in the end what you have is just two utterly mangled sides and then we have the scene of course when the death of optimus prime and i guess they got thousands of letters from angry kids and angry parents. You know, my kid is crying. I can't believe you killed Optimus Prime. And, you know, like the writers had said, I, we were just moving, you know, clearing the decks so we could make more characters. And it, the outcry was so much, they actually had to bring Optimus Prime back. By then, I'd sort of given up on the series, though I did watch it much later, the, the return of Optimus Prime, and it was bad, and, and that was it. But, you know, the, the actor, Peter Cullen, he lost, I think, all of his his voice parts in this movie, they were all killed. And this is where you know, during the death scene, we're introduced to this new concept called the Matrix of Leadership, which is this crystal inside of a housing, which resides in the chest of whoever is the the Autobot leader. This is you know, brand new for the movie, and it's inside Optimus Prime, and it's neat because he drops it, and Hot Rod catches it, and it sort of shines for him, but it's not meant to him. No, it's not meant for him. Or let's rephrase that it is meant for him because he's the one who held it first, but Optimus Prime wished to pass the, the mantle of leadership onto Ultra Magnus, who takes it from Hot Rod and puts it in his chest. So it's kind of this, this foreshadowing, though as a kid I didn't see that, that Ultra Magnus may have the matrix of leadership, but he is not the leader. That clearly is, you know, Hot Rod's hero journey from young punk to ultimately the leader, Rodimus Prime, because he'll be, Transformed by the Matrix into, well, actually a new toy. <laughs> you know, but it is quite the death scene. I everyone's standing around this absolutely shattered body of Optimus Prime, and he can barely speak.
1: But one day, an Autobot shall rise from our ranks and use the power of the Matrix to light our darkest hour.
0: And, and when he dies, he turns gray and people are crying and you get the beep, you know, like the, like they really put a lot in, of emotion visually. And, and in terms of the, the characterization and the dialogue and the sound, they really put a lot into the death scene of this character. It was, you know, in direct contrast to the sort of slaughterhouse that you've seen up until now. The one interesting thing I'll say about the death is when he does die you stop hearing sound Uh, you just hear the music you do not hear daniel cry you do not hear uh, prime's body go limp and his head turn to the side you just hear the music it's a very deliberate choice i'm not sure if it's the right one but it works really well and it's a lot more complex of a choice than you'd expect from a kid's cartoon to let the music speak for itself and then interesting enough after the death we see that unicron has been monitoring this though we don't know how and we see that the Matrix of Leadership, we see that he sees the Matrix of Leadership has been passed on, and we see that he's angry. So we get the impression that he is connected to the, the Matrix somehow. And then we get to see the Decepticon side of it, which is Astrotrain trying to fly back to Cybertron, clearly overloaded and saying, Jettison some way or we're never going to make it back. And so Starscream decides, okay, uh, dead and uh, the dead and wounded get pushed off and included in that is megatron and it's interesting because they're just merciless about it despite the fact that they're begging
1: Get. Make room the for
0: and then immediately there's a struggle for who gets to be the next leader of the of the decepticons obviously starscream nominates himself soundwave decides to step in the the constructicons say well we formed devastator we're the strongest it should be us and you literally have a brawl on this Ship and we're sort of left to guess who will win. And then, you know, we see all these dead bodies again, old Transformers that they wanted to not have to sell the toys for anymore Skywarp and Thundercracker, uh, who are jets like Starscream. We see the Insecticons and we see uh, Megatron floating through space and they encounter Unicron. Welcome, Megatron. Voiced by Orson Welles. And it's interesting to note that Orson Welles at this point was dying. He was not well. He had respiratory problems. And so they had to run his voice through filters and give him this scary metallic sound. I an In order to make the recordings work. And there's an interesting story out there that Orson Welles had passed away during the audio recording portion of the movie and that he hadn't had time to finish Unicron's lines and that Leonard Nimoy, who plays someone we'll meet later in the film, actually very shortly, uh, that Nimoy himself had finished the lines. And I believe this for for decades. It turns out it's not true. Orson Welles passed away soon after, like days after, uh, or maybe it was weeks, but it was really soon after he'd finished his job, but he did in fact finish. You know the neat thing is is that when megatron is confronted with unicron at first you know he says show yourself like because he thinks that maybe unicron is a vehicle and then when he realizes that the moon is talking to him we sort of see this this scene where unicron fills the entire left of the screen and floating in front of the, his gaping maw is tiny little megatron who's still despite the fact that he is shattered and barely functional and clearly, dying is still defiant. I mean, this is what makes Megatron such an incredible character, you know, he's such a compelling character. Is that he never gives up the position of power, regardless of how disadvantaged he is and how losing a position he's actually in. He's always aggra- he's always on the on the uh, on on the offense, and that's what that's what's kept him in charge of the Decepticons for millions of years, you know. And so that there's a point where in this conversation Unicron says this is my command, go find the Matrix of Leadership and destroy it. Megatron says no no I've done that and he says you're a fool it exists in Ultra Magnus go kill it and he refuses so Unicron starts to sort of tear him apart and he says no no I accept and then we get to see the making of a new toy, well making of new characters they convert these characters into Cyclonus who is a sort of a warrior uh, in his armada Scourge who is uh, a tracker and his huntsman, the sweeps, and then Megatron is turned into Galvatron, which is essentially the new Megatron. But instead of being a gun that must be held, his one weakness—remember that—to be his most powerful, he must be his most vulnerable. That's just taken away from, or this, it's taken from him. He's no longer tied to another, you know, Decepticons' hands. In order to be powerful, he converts into a cannon that can fire on its own. It's got a, uh, legs, you know, sort of like a tripod, weird-looking cannon thing. And of course, what we learn is that the matrix of leadership, we now know why Unicron wants it. It's the one thing, the only thing that can stand in his way. Yeah, they've introduced an unstoppable force, and they've introduced an immovable object to step in its way. It's convenient, but it works. What I never understood is why they didn't bring back bring back Frank Welker for the Michael Bay movies. Like They made the point of bringing back Peter Cullen to play Optimus Prime, in much the same fashion as he was in the cartoon, not quite as interesting, but you know, still an interesting character. Why? But Megatron is kind of this mess. I mean, all the Transformers in in the the Bay movies are messes, but Megatron was such a good character, uh, in many ways more interesting than Optimus Prime himself. And I always wonder why they didn't bring back Frank Welker. And as I recall, they interviewed him, and he didn't understand either. And you know, in this whole bargain where he. He create, you know, where he creates new bodies for these people. He he he. Unicron says something very chilling. You belong to me. now. What I find interesting is that the new Transformers, uh, you know, like the, the sort of these season three Transformers, both the ones we see on the Autobot side and the ones we see on the Decepticon side, with you know Galvatron and uh, Scourge and. Uh, Cyclonus is that they're much more streamlined, like '80s. If you've seen ever seen '80s vehicles, they're very blocky. Everything is very blocky in the '80s, and I guess they imag- imagined the far future of 2005 as being much more, much more curvy, more streamlined, and yet everything is super bulky. So it's it's not streamlined thin. It's just streamlined, not hard edges, but everything's. Mm bigger it's kind of funny because you know you think about uh, as an example cell phones you know the cell phone you know when, when when this original cartoon came out cell phones were the bricks and then they slowly became smaller and thinner and now the standard smartphone smartphone is the slim sleek looking thing it's not bulky at all it's interesting to see how People in the past viewed the future, especially now that we're in it. I mean, we're further along. It's 2018, so this this movie uh, takes place in 2005, 13 years ago. Uh, It's interesting to see how people in 1985 viewed that far future. And so, of course, the minute you know, we immediately see that Megatron has been turned into Galvatron, and this is Leonard Nimoy, and Leonard Nimoy's version of... Remember, this is still Megatron inside, but clearly he's decided to accept Unicron's orders.
1: I will rip open Ultra Magnus and every other Autobot until the Matrix has been destroyed.
0: And the very next scene is on Cybertron, where clearly uh, Starscream has... One out, he has been coronated. It's a little absurd. There's this sort of like hall of leaders where we're seeing statues of what I'm guessing are previous Decepticon leaders. Obviously, this is something that they had thrown together at some point. But the funny thing is that in this coronation, the Constructicons are blowing on trumpets with no atmosphere but okay it's a cartoon whatever and starscream it's sort of one of the few corny uh corny moments of the film he sh- he shoots off his laser and it cuts off the ends of all of their horns he says get on with the ceremony and you know megatron sorry galvatron shows up and in rather brutal and quick form kills starscream
1: who disrupts my coronation Horror Nation, Starscream. This is bad comedy. Megatron, is that you? Here's a hint.
0: And the death of Starscream is its own kind of gruesome. He gets struck with Galvatron's transformed cannon shot, and he kind of turns into like it, it actually changes him from like you know metal to like this brittle I don't know what. And he sort of crumbles like he were made of I don't know crumbled like he was made of clay and Galvatron transforms again and just crushes the crown, this silly crown that Starscream has insisted on being crowned with. It's, again, another one of these gruesome deaths I was quite surprised by, and they really do linger on on it. And shortly thereafter, Unicron shows up to eat one of Cybertron's moons. Now, considering how close these moons are to Cybertron, I'm not sure why it takes Unicron, like... Half the like the rest of the movie to get from the moon to Cybertron itself. Maybe he eats it and goes off elsewhere. It's just kind of poor timing in the film's take. But this is kind of the, the controversy of uh, of this film is that this is the uh, this is the moon that Spike is on, and he tries to escape but gets caught in the gravitational pull of of Unicron's I don't know what his suction beam, and he swears.
1: Look, it isn't even dented. Oh shit! What are we gonna do now?
0: And I remember that in the in the movie theaters, like the kids gasped. I mean, not that they hadn't heard the word oh, you know, oh shit before, but they didn't expect to hear it in a Transformers cartoon. And it was such a big deal that they uh, they simply removed the line from the video, uh, like the VHS. And it wasn't until the DVD came out years later that they put the line back in. What I'll also notice is that, you know, as it eats these, it's actually the two moons of Cybertron, two of the moons of Cybertron that Unicron eats, and it's the second one that Daniel and Bumblebee are on. Bumblebee, by the way, can speak, unlike in the, in, in the, in the Crappy Bay movies. Uh, Bumblebee and Spike were kind of a team in the cartoon. They set up explosives to destroy the moon. There is this constant sense in this movie of desperation, that the, that the Autobots are always one step ahead of defeat, that the wolf is constantly biting at their heels, then they are having to commit increasingly extreme acts of desperation in order to keep their head above water, including destroying one of their own moons in an attempt to kill this monster. And nothing works. It's obviously, it's the buildup to, you know, the matrix, which will light our darkest hour, uh, which is what they say about it. But it's still, it's increasingly desperate you know we've seen two gruesome battles and things are only getting worse it's it's pretty intense for a kids cartoon even then in the 80s and and of course this is at this point where we learn just what Unicron meant when he says you belong to me now because Galvatron still standing on the dais where he had been crowned leader of the Decepticons is witnessing the destruction of these moons because of course there's no atmosphere so we can just see it and he cries out uh, you know, the, how dare Unicron Cybertron and its moons belong to me? And suddenly, he's in intense pain, and he's reminded, rem- "Remember, we belong to him." And so, of course, you know, now the race is on. Now we know what this story. Now we know what this story is really about. And the Decepticons hop into one of the Ark ships, you know, or sorry, the auto, and now the Autobots ha- hop into an an Ark ship, and as they're about to. Galvatron shows up, and there's a fight and a chase, and, you know, again, it's it's always like the Autobots are one step away from, from dying, and, and they don't dare stop. You know, and here's, I, I think where the film starts to fail a little bit is that they have two shuttles, and they divide their forces, which is really an excuse for to give these characters, I guess, a chance to shine by sending them in two different locations, but that means we're getting two different, very different stories. We're gonna, we're gonna wind up with, uh, you know, one group on a junk planet and one on this nightmare planet, run by the Quintessons, who we will learn later are actually the creators of Cybertron in one of the many origin stories. All of them different. I guess this is the nature of a cartoon; it never quite gets it straight. But we're seeing two very different stories. And it starts with them boarding these shuttles and being split off because the Decepticons attack. And at one point, one shuttle's worth of Autobots thinks that the other has been destroyed. And he says, like, I just, I can't deal with that now. I've got to get out of here. And, you know, again, it's just, it's this constant go, 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 where there's no time to catch your breath because the Decepticons are right on your heels. And this is where we start to get a, a feel for some of the other characters. Like, the the Dinobots have always been... Presented as sort of dumb because you know dinosaurs can't be very smart because it's this old myth that you know the Stegosaurus had the brain the size of a walnut or something you know like Grimlock who plays the Tyrannosaurus Rex always talks in in sort of Neanderthal caveman talk you know me Grimlock angry me Grimlock angry and we see sort of the slow lumbering Dinobots trying to be dragged onto the shuttle by by Blur and it's kind of a comedy routine the slowest thinking Transformers. Along with the fastest thinking transformer.
1: Nice Dino, good Dino, sweet Dino. Won't you step into the nice spaceship for blood pretty please, pretty 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 please? Nice Dino, good Dino. which not you on top of the cherry and some whipped cream? Nice Dino, good Dino, sweet Dino. Me, Grimlock, not nice Dino. Me, bass, brains.
0: And we learn that Cup is sort of this, this this war veteran every battle reminds him of some other battle he's clearly been fighting in this war between the Autobots and the Decepticons for a very long time and Hot Rod is the young punk you know we're 40 minutes into this film and we're now just learning that Hot Rod is well a hothead and Cup yeah we knew he was an old cantankerous guy but now we learn he's actually a grizzled veteran and he's trying to teach Hot Rod the finer points of being a soldier. We have Grimlock and the, and the Dinobots, along with Hot Rod and Cup, and they've sort of escaped death. And they land on one planet, and then the others, uh, RC and Springer and Ultramagnus and, and Daniel, and they wound up on this planet of junk. And so now we're on to two very different adventures, uh, both visually stunning. I'm not sure whether it works that we see two of them, but this is what they've chosen. I do like the effects here, because Galvatron and his forces have been given a starship, provided by unicron and it fires missiles that are very they're very anime-like in in terms of their visual representation the swarms of missiles not just one big missile that comes at you but you know 15 or 20 that sort of come at you you know erratically through the air and and they sort of move as a swarm it's a very anime-like look to it um if you ever play the old Uh, PC game Free Space and Free free Space 2, which at this point are 20 years old, but you can get them on GOG.com and and Steam. I totally recommend it. They have the same thing. This crazy anime-like look to it. It, it, It's a very visually exciting choice and new for Transformers, and I really like it. And the interesting thing is here, of course, is that Galvatron thinks he's destroyed the, the Matrix because Ultra Magnus has faked the destruction of his ship uh, by jettisoning, jettisoning everything except the like, sort of the front quarter of it. And uh, Galvatron thinks, well, I've destroyed the Matrix. And, and, and Unicron tortures him again, and he doesn't understand why. And so he goes back to Unicron. You know, and it's an interesting conflict there that we have this very proud Megatron, and now Galvatron, uh, who answered to no one, who is now essentially chained to Unicron, not literally, but anytime he wavers from what Unicron wants, he's Tormented, uh, it's represented, you know, visually by sort of this red flashing light. But he's clearly in an enormous amount of pain, and he has no choice, you know, to be reminded, you know, Cybertron belongs to him, but he belongs to Unicron. So he sent, you know, so he races to Earth to destroy the Matrix. Uh, he thinks he's destroyed it. He's tortured again. It's sort of on and on. So you have this very very powerful character, who's finally had his one weakness taken away from him, but it's been replaced by servitude to unicron again more complexity in this one character and his relationship with his transformed self than in all the Michael bay movies and then we're introduced to the first of these two planets the one that cup and hot rod and the dinobots crashed on now we saw them crash on it and it's this warped world it's not even a sphere it's it's this weird. It looks like it was sort of warped by gravity, and it has rings, which of course are metal. It's not like Saturn's rings. It's literal metal rings, and they are also warped. They're not perfectly circular. It's sort of like this twisted planet, and then the first thing we see is that they are in an ocean with mechanical fish, and it's like, you know, small fish are eaten by big fish, big fish are eaten by bigger fish. They are trapped by what looks like a giant mechanical squid. It's a very intense scene, with this really intense music. Come! Grimlock! Slag! Anybody! And again, they're underwater, and they modify their voices uh, you know it's just that nice little touch that they probably wouldn't have bothered with in the cartoon but here they have the time and the budget so why not and of course after this sort of brief terrible fight on the ocean of of this planet of this sort of ocean twisted planet we see the planet of junk which we realize isn't really a planet it looks like i don't know like the like how would i describe it it's almost as if a chunk of the crust of an old planet has been blown away from the rest of the planet. So you've got sort of this convex arc of land with junk on it. Almost like, I don't know, think of like a, a warped potato chip in space with piles of junk on it. And this is where Ultra Magnus and crew land and where they'll meet Rek' Gar, played by Eric Idle. And here again is another character who is a one-note character. He talks TV. He's been watching American television and so he speaks like it which is too bad when you have a you know an actor as talented as eric Idle to i guess throw him away by not giving him the chance to be as funny as he could be i suppose it's entirely uh fitting though that the music that's played during the fight between Rek'gar and his Junkion warriors, Transformers who have built themselves and rebuild themselves out of junk and as soon as you knock them down they rebuild themselves like literally on the spot. They are um, there's a fight between them and the Decepticons before of course, or them and the Autobots before they become friends and the music is Dare to be Stupid by a Weirdo Yankovic. And sort of this is where like, before the battle, just after they crash uh, Daniel is given access to an exosuit, which is essentially like a, uh, I guess you call it sort of a robot powered power suit. Think of like the, uh, the rig that uh, Ripley play, plays around with in Aliens, except this one's self-contained. Uh, it allows him to transform. So essentially Daniel gets to be a transformer because, you know, he's on, a, <laughs> he's on a world with no atmosphere fighting against robots. He'd be kind of useless otherwise. And so the use of the exosuit is actually pretty cool. Uh, Spike has one as well we see right off the bat. I can only imagine what a hell that would be to have to live on that on Cybertron's moon for who knows months or years at a time but Spike seems to have managed it and Daniel figures it out as well. It's a neat trick. It allows an otherwise helpless character to not be quite so helpless because otherwise the rest of the movie will be as it has been up until now which is essentially the little bug Daniel hoping he won't get crushed in the midst of this big, terrible battle between robots who could step on him and not even notice. You know, at this point, the story sort of goes back and forth between the Twisted Planet with Hot Rod and Cup and the Dinobots and the, and the Junk Planet. And, you know, we, we go back to the, the Twisted Planet and we get to see... Um, you know, Hot Rod and company sort of driving around they've managed to fix Cup who who is who's injured in the crash and they're attacked by these things called the Sharktacons and it's kind of funny because we're introduced to this thing called the Universal Greeting
1: To my castle I'll use the Universal Greeting Universal Greeting? Watch, I'll have him eating out of my hand Ba weep grana whip weep Ba-weep-grana-weep-ninibon? Ba-weep-grana-weep-ninibon? See, the universal greeting works every time. Not without making any sudden moves. Offer Mm. them an Energon goodie. Ba-weep-grana-weep-ninibon.
0: Yes, the movie is 32 years old. I still remember it. Say, ba-weep-grana-weep-ninibon, and that works really well until they run out of Energizer goodies and the Sharktacons sort of grab them and drag them off to their masters. It's kind of funny. Also a good thing for a party. Someone, some creepy guy is bothering you, just look at him and say, well, Bob weep grana, weep Ninibon, and walk off like it's the most obvious thing in the world. Now, in both cases, when we were talking about the sort of the twisted planet with the Sharktacons, because they literally, like, they're transformers that that transform into sort of shark-looking creatures, though really they look more like round, weird-looking piranhas, I guess. You know, with them on the one hand and the, the Junkions on the other... Everywhere the Autobots go, yes, they're eventually gonna find maybe allies, but everything up front is is threatening. Everyone is an enemy. So it's not just that they've got Galvatron and the Decepticons biting at their heels and they have you know Unicron in their on the on the horizon, everything they're crashing into is also dangerous. And it's I'm starting to appreciate just how intense this film is and and must have been for, you know, ten year olds, eleven year olds. Who are watching it. About the only sort of positive we see at this point is on the Twisted Planet. We see A sort of a small robot, because of course there's the large robots, uh, the large you know the large Autobots, and then there's the smaller ones like Bumblebee, and of course you know Brawn and Charger, Windcharger, and a bunch of them. They've been killed off, so they had to introduce a new smaller toy. These were cheaper Transformers; I think they were five bucks each. Uh, We see one of these on the Twisted Planet. We don't know if he's a friend, but we see him spying Cup and Hot Rod being dragged off by the Sharkticons and following sort of following them back to some sort of fortress. We assume he's a good guy because of what, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's telegraphed pretty obviously. So hey, new toy. And of course, now that on the Twisted Planet, now that Cup and Hot Rod, who you know, I haven't mentioned at this point, have not hooked up with the Dinobots again, they're brought into this really twisted-looking courtroom, which is essentially like this massive pool. And up high on a balcony is this transformer which is essentially five floating heads that rotate so imagine like a pole with five heads on it supported by you know a rocket not a rocket but some sort of engine which helps it float and it's got these you know sort of octopus-like tentacles and they act as a judge so you know when they asked to when they're asked to presume guilt or innocence one uh, one, ho- uh, one, one face says guilty, and then what we learn is that if you're declared innocent, they throw you to the Shark tocons to get eaten. Sort of makes you wonder what would happen if you were declared guilty. Has the Imperial Magistrate reached a verdict? I have. Guilty or innocent. Innocent. Feed him to the Shark tocons. And. You may think, okay, whatever, that's just silly. But there's sort of a terrifying... There's a there's a sort of this terrifying aspect to that. The very idea that on this planet, to be declared innocent is to be killed terribly. It's, a, it's this awful twisting of what justice is. And at one point, you know, they say, you know, his hot rod mouths off, and they say, quiet, or you'll be held in contempt of this court. And he says, I have nothing but contempt for this court, which is you know boilerplate silliness but just this idea that in this twisted place to be declared innocent is to be murdered it sort of reminds me of the old you know witch trials that you you know if you thought a woman was a witch you sunk her in water and if she was a witch she'd float if she drowned she wasn't a witch You, you know so you can either be innocent and drown or be guilty and float in which case they're gonna you know burn you at the stake not sure which is worse okay well i know which is worse but still it's pretty awful and so they're sort of, you know, Hot Rod and Copper sort of, you know, they've witnessed this terrible trial and they're dragged into a cell where we meet Kranix, who was the sole survivor of the planet from the very beginning. And then we learn that, you know, what is Unicron? Because remember, they haven't seen Unicron yet and they learn, you know, it's a planet that eats other planets. And then Kranix is taken off and declared innocent and executed and that's sort of it. And there's, you know, again, the sort of the cruelty that the last survivor of a planet is killed for the audience to see, like, wow. <laughs> Again, the, the sort of casual brutality of this film is a little bit shocking. I, I thought about it before, but not really. it hadn't really occurred to me, like, wow, this is a brutal film. Like, yeah, kids can take it, but I can understand why parents complained about this back in the day. At this point, we see elsewhere on the Twisted Planet, the Dinobots are sort of wandering along, and there's a silly little scene where they come across... The newly introduced Tiny Autobot, uh, who we, dis- we learn is Wheelie, and he has a weird way of speaking, and he's sort of a cute little kid. We'll later learn that he had been crashed on this planet and living in hiding for many years. And He's not a very interesting character. Uh, thankfully, they don't use him a whole heck of a lot in the third season, as I recall, and they certainly don't use him a lot in in the movie. But he becomes sort of an offset for Grimlock, because Grimlock, for all of his, his big, gruff, me Grimlock toughness, uh, Wheelie is a cute little kid who sort of tames the wild beast in him. It's very silly, but there it is. Yeah, that's what in this, unfortunately for, the, for this movie and the third season, counts as, counts as character development. And it, it's, it's kind of this weird contrast, because all the season one and two characters have not deep characters, you know, it's a cartoon after all, but deeper characters than all the new ones. Again, it's almost like the writers changed out from the second to third season. And the writers they brought in to write the movie and consequently the third season, I'm not sure if they're the same but certainly they follow the same through line in terms of characterization it's like they were interested in sort of much more surface it actually reminds me of why I hate the the Star Trek J.J. Abrams reboots because because i'm a hardcore trekkie and these were very you know pretty deep characters they were interesting they were complex and then in the in the crappy jj abrams movies they're turned into cardboard cutouts and and that's maybe why i gave up on the third season of transformers because all the characters introduced in the movie were so one-dimensional in the meantime galvatron has returned to unicron and has begged what is your problem why are you torturing me And he explains, you know, Ultramagnus is alive, he's on the planet of junk, go get him. It's clear this is a relationship that's not going to last. So, you know, we go back to the planet of junk and Retgar and his people are about to attack. And before they do, the Decepticons move in and, you know, it's Galvatron and his new hunters. And there's this this big fight and they manage to... Uh, sort of isolate Ultra Magnus and Ultra Magnus pulls out the, the Matrix thinking he'll unleash it because he thinks this is his darkest hour and instead he's literally blown apart, like into pieces, and Galvatron takes the Matrix and decides he's going after Unicron now. It's This is Megatron. he, he can call him what he wants, but he hasn't become less mercenary. He hasn't become less vicious and less ambitious. Uh, so yeah, he's he's got what Unicron wants, but he's going to use it against him now. This is another one of those, you know, the death of Ultramagnus is another one of those, a kind of overly cruel, overly dwelled upon death. Like he takes this this barrage of shots from the sweeps, and he starts to groan, and then he just explodes. It's again kind of gruesome. If this were a biological entity, it would be like an R-rated splatter film, but because it's just you know it's bits of robot they can put it in a a kid's film but remember that kids anthropomorphize really well they turn the inanimate into animate and you know these are robots that talk because they're given voice and they move because they're animated and so you're watching a character that in a kid's mind is no different than a human explode it's
1: pretty awful magnus i want the matrix never we exterminate him
0: of course later on he'll be back he's the one character who comes back from the dead in this movie but that doesn't make it any less gruesome to see the body explode and the head go flying in the meantime we sort of go back to the twisted planet where cup and hot rod are now sort of on the plank over this pool and they're declared innocent so they're dropped into the pool with the Sharktacons, and they decide to go down fighting, and there's this this gruesome fight where they start destroying the Sharktacons, and then suddenly the uh, the Dinobots show up, and they sort of growl and snarl at the Sharktacons, and tell the Sharktacons, you know, turn on your masters, and they sort of do, and then very suddenly the threat is over. The Quintessons, these terrible judges, have... They, they've sort of been neutralized by their own minions, the Sharktacons, and that's it. Like, it's. They're interesting characters, and they'll come back to them in the third season, as I recall, and we'll learn that they are. The Quintessons are kind of tied up in the creation of Cybertron, but it, it just. I don't know. It it seems like this this particular part of the story could have used a little more time. I would rather have seen more time poured in here than in the initial introduction to the Twisted Planet, which was them you know, cup and hot rod being lost in the ocean. One thing I should mention about the fight between Cup and Hot Rod and the Sharktacons is that it's more of this again, not heavy metal, it's kind of this hair metal stuff, this hair these hair metal bands, hair bands from the eighties. Not at all what you expect from a, a cartoon, and I, I sometimes wonder whether the sort of the loud, screaming, heavy metal sounding gravelly vocals of these songs are helped, you know, sort of help trigger the parents' anger, uh, because there was a lot of reaction to this film. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I don't know. But in any case, you know, the the battle's over, the Dinobots have sort of scared the Sharktacons into rebelling against their masters, and Wheelie has said, hey, look, there's a ship. And it's it's kind of this weird-looking ship. It looks like a corkscrew. Like everything else on this planet, it's twisted. So there we go, twisted planet. Planet number one of two, problem solved, and off they go. And then we go back to the junk planet where the the Autobots have found Magnus' shattered body, and then they know the Matrix is gone, and now there's no hope, no hope at all. Well, at least that's what they think. But we know there's hope because it's a children's cartoon, and the good guys have to win. And this is where Retgar and the Junkions come in. And this is where they fight. And again, this fight is, you know, this is where Retgar and the Junkions come in. Now they have a chance to fight. And we see that they're kind of disposable people. They transform into motorcycles. So one Junkion is the motorcycle. The other rides him. If they wipe out, they might transform. The rider becomes the motorcycle. The motorcycle becomes the rider. At one point, you know, one of the, Junkions gets his, his arm broken off and he just puts it right back on which makes them kind of nightmarish and you have, again, this high-speed battle and this is Weird Al Yankovic singing in the background Dare to be Stupid, which is a bad song. What I will say about the fight is that it's beautifully shot. Again, some really cool cinematic scenes, the angles they choose and the way the bodies move. This is an exceptionally well-animated film. The funny thing is, is that this battle against this large horde of unstoppable troops ends when Daniel whacks Retgar over the head with a beam, and then you zoom back and you see Springer and Blur and Perceptor and you know Daniel and RC and the fallen Retgar, and there's like no one else around. It's Like, where the hell did they where did they go? Or is it just that, with their leader down, they all freeze in horror? I don't know. And then the scary ship shows up in the sky and of course it's the twisted ship from the Twisted Planet and now we have Cup and Hot Rod and the Dinobots and Wheelie show up and Hot Rod in one of the few moments of humor in this movie says, wait, I know what to do and he pulls out an Energon goody to Rekgar and says weep Grana Weep Ninibon and Rekgar is sort of amused and holds it up and goes weep Grana Weep Ninibon and everyone's, all the the on start you know, chanting it and they're suddenly they're dancing, and now we have our heroes unified and now they have like armies of new uh, help. We have Wheelie and we have Rekgar and the Junkions and they have their own junk looking ship and so they sort of launch off to Cybertron because now they have to deal with Unicron. Oh yeah, and the the Junkions, the you know the with the replaceable body parts, they put Ultra Magnus back together. Not with detailed surgery, they literally just put him back together like a piece of pieces of Lego. They buff him up with like liquid wax and he wakes up. It's kind of silly considering the gruesome death he went, underwent and all the other gruesome deaths, but Ultramagnus is a new toy for the new toy season, so he has to survive. It... It comes off as a little silly considering the high stakes up until now with so many deaths, so many of them, so brutal, and his one of the most brutal, but don't worry, we can just put them back together. You sort of wonder whether they could bring the Junkions to Earth and reassemble all these other Transformers, but there it is. The movie is a little less consistent than I had initially considered. Again, you know, hey, this is you know the, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool, and I still think this movie's pretty damn cool, but it's not nearly as uh, coherently assembled as I once thought. But I can hardly blame a kids' film for not being perfect. I'm okay with that. In the meantime, they've launched off, you know, they've all launched off to, to you know to go get, uh, you know, to go save Cybertron. In the meantime, we look to Unicron, and standing on Unicron, which is a little bit like a flea on uh, an elephant, is Galvatron with the Matrix of Leadership chained around his neck, threatening him. And this is where things get extra special impressive. Unicron has had enough of this bullshit, and he transforms. This is where we learn Unicron isn't just a planet. He's a transformer. And he's a cool-looking transformer. He's, like, he's huge. He's a planet-sized transformer, uh, with scary-looking, almost like, decrepit wings and he's got horns and he's pretty scary looking. And when he transforms, of course, Unicron is standing, or uh, Galvatron is standing on him, and he's freaking horrified because if taking on a planet wasn't enough, holy crap, this thing transforms, and he, <laughs> he sort of realizes, "Holy shit, I'm screwed." It's it, it's kind of funny because, but even then, you know, will, as we'll see later, uh, Galvatron is still Megatron heart, and he just doesn't know when to he doesn't know when to quit, he doesn't know when to back down, when to go on the defensive. This is why I like this character so much. One thing I will note here, and I don't think I've noted it before. I certainly saw this when uh, Autobot City was transformed. They spend a lot more time showing you how the transformers transform. You see more of the mechanics, the pieces moving into place, the you know, metal sliding panels clicking in. You know, it's funny, I was in Walmart recently and I saw the Transformers in the toy section. And they look like crap. They're all plastic, and they, they're very simplistic. The Transformers, like the Generation One, I think, is what the toy series that I, you know, that I'm talking about is called Generation One Transformers. They were really complex toys. They were metal and plastic, and they came with instructions. I remember I would get these. Like I, I didn't have a lot of Transformers. I had, um, I had, uh, I can't think of his name now. The uh, the, the Lamborghini Countach. Um, I had him, Sideswipe I think was his name, and I had, I, my sister had Bumblebee actually, and I had the Stegosaurus Dinobot, and I had, I had a few others, and I Thrust, which was one of the Jets for the Decepticons, and, and a few others like that. The point is, I would get these, and I would read the instructions, and, and you'd spend like the first night transforming them back and forth, just to get used to how they did it, so you didn't look like an idiot if you were playing with your friends, and didn't know how to do it. And some of them, like, I had Omega Supreme, who was, like, a city-sized Transformer. He wasn't Autobot City. He was, like, it was kind of neat. It was a, you know, when he was a robot, he was a robot. When he was, and he walked. He, like, his legs moved one in front of the other, almost like the old wind-up toys. But he had uh, batteries. But when he was in the city, he was a track. And there was a tank that ran around on the track, and in the center there was this cool, like nineteen fifties looking rocket with a launch cycle, and it was very, very cool. Or uh, launch pad, it was very cool looking, but you know it was like a. 5 minute transforming cycle um, I remember I babysat for a kid and he had Metroplex which was like an actual Transformers city he came later and holy hell you could spend 10 minutes trying to figure out how to do this uh, and it was neat that they in this movie they finally sort of showed the complexity because in the cartoons the Transformer sound was um, you know and it was really quick and, and it just it happens fast because they want to move on to the story but here they take the time, and when we see Unicron transform from planet to robot, they want us to relish in the terrifying awesomeness of, and I don't mean awesome, is isn't like totally awesome, the sort of awe-inspiring size of this planet transforming. And you see it move slowly, and the animation, you really get to appreciate the use of shadow, and color, and, and angle, it's so much better than the cartoon. Again, as a, as 1980s animation goes, at least intended for the American market, this is absolutely worth watching just to watch things like that. Now my understanding is that there was a Unicron toy, some mythical toy of which I've heard varying stories of its size and complexity, but it never came out for sale anywhere that I know of. But it sort of reminds me of the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, which I've seen up close. It's enormous, and you sort of wonder, who the hell buys that for their kid? Like that's the like you know, that would have been like a hundred and fifty dollar transformer. I, I don't even want to consider how much that transformer would cost if it were made today. So anyway, Unicorn transforms, and he has this to say. What a
1: time. Considered sparing your wretched little planet, Cybertron. But now, you shall witness its dismemberment.
0: And of course, as you can hear, Galvatron's along for the ride, and you sort of wonder, well, okay, we've seen him eat moons. How big is Unicron in his transformed size compared to Cybertron? And it's clear he is as He is bigger than the planet, and and we see him sort of reach out and sort of smash his hand down and just crash crash his hand down onto Cybertron, and shockwave, he'll scramble, and you see Decepticons, now the table is turned, almost like the Battle of an Autobot City, where the Autobots scramble to defend their home. Now the Decepticons are, and they're even in a worse position because, you know, a giant planet-sized robot is, you know, ripping them limb from limb. You know, and they start taking shots at, at Unicron, and we realize this is—you know—these are these are mosquitoes buzzing in the face of a of a giant, and he's swatting them. And the ship that he had prov- that Unicron had provided to Galvatron attacks him; he crushes it in his hand like it's nothing. It's—it's it's, this is a, a less brutal battle only because it's on such a large scale. But considering what he's doing to the planet of Cybertron, you can't help but think he's destroying—you know—hundreds or thousands of Decepticon soldiers. It's uh, again. There's sort of a brutality to this film, but by now we're so, I won't say immune to it, but so numb to it. Like, oh, okay, someone's tearing apart a planet. That's nice. And oddly enough, at this point, this is where Galvatron decides to take a shot, you know, to take a uh, you know he's going to take on Unicron now so he transforms into his his platform cannon and he starts shooting at Unicron in the face and of course it does nothing because again it's like a it's like a fly buzzing in your face and Unicron just takes him, picks him up <laughs> two fingers and swallows him. but of course Galvatron sort of floats down the throat in one piece so we know we're going to see him again obviously he has the the matrix of leadership around his neck and we need to get that back and this is when both ships come along and You know, up until now, every time Cup has said, well, you know, this, you know, every time you see something, well, this reminds me of this and that reminds me of that. And I remember this battle and I remember that battle. And this
1: time, I don't believe it. Doesn't this remind you of anything, Cup? Nope. Never seen anything like this before.
0: And it's sort of a flippant moment, but you got to realize these are people who, you know, these are Autobots. Cybertron is their home and they're watching a monster destroy it. And despite, you know, literally millions of years of war, this is unlike anything they've ever seen before. And it's, it's Armageddon. And, you know, by this point, again, we're kind of numb to the sort of the epic scale of destruction and brutality this film has presented us with. But then Cup looks and goes like, I've never seen anything like this before. Like he's absolutely at a, he's at a loss. But of course, he's going to get into the fight because he has to. It's an impressive scene for a kid's film people who realize they're facing Armageddon but they're going to fight it anyway. Now in a reversal of the Battle of Autobot City, now it's the Decepticons in the defensive, or in this case a Unicron and the twisted ship with hot rod and cup in it uh, bursts through one of Unicron's eyes which, you know, ow and the, the Rekgar ship gets crushed, though we'll learn later that he has survived uh, which is good, because Perceptor's on board and, and he's a cool character even in his techno babble state. But yeah, down they go. So now, of course, we know we've got we've got Hot Rod able to confront Galvatron because you know we know since the death of Optimus Prime that he is the true heir to the Autobot leadership. We knew this the minute he took hold of the Matrix, and now it's a chance for the two to meet up. So now we've got you know Springer Ben RC and Daniel uh, and Hot Rod inside Unicron. Uh, Hot Rod is is separated the others are now sort of in his body and it's kind of neat you get to see unicrons i guess you call it his immune system which are these scary tentacle cables with clampers on the end you know of course he'd have an immune system unicron is presented as a living being it's just it's neat to see how they they've sort of envisioned a transformer's immune system as physical sort of grasping objects that'll physically tear apart any threat to the body any virus in this case autobots and of course, you know, Hot Rod, who's been separated from them, he sort of wanders deeper into the body of Unicron, where he comes across Galvatron, who says, we have to work together. He says, well, you've got the Matrix of Leadership. And he says, it can't be opened. And Hot Rod says, well, yeah, not by you. He says, doesn't matter. We're, you know, we're allies now. And then Unicron torments him again and says, no, no, you, you need to kill him. And, you know, Galvatron realizes, <laughs> Matrix or not, he's still, he he still belongs to Unicron so he goes after Hot Rod. In the meantime we go back to the battle where Unicron is standing on Cybertron and fending off you know the combined Autobot Decepticon assault and it's almost a King Kong like thing. He's standing on the planet swatting off these flies and I can't help but be reminded of the like the 1930s King Kong film with him swatting aside biplanes. It's kind of funny. There's a point. There's a point where the so the Dinobots go in and they, they sort of get close to him and they sort of come at him on his, sort of his, I think on his waist, and you can see them tear through his skin. And again, this is sort of a, a nod to the detail they show in the animation that you see, underneath the skin, you see sort of not his musculature but his subdermis, you know, his more more layers of machinery and ductwork and stuff like that. Uh, It's not just another layer of metal. They actually took the time to draw all that in, and it's pretty cool. But in the end, he reaches down and sort of clamps his fist, and they all scatter because each of them is smaller than one of his knuckles. This is the one problem with this movie and with Transformers in general, is that Transformers, their sizes vary depending on what they need. You know, Soundwave is a full-size Decepticon, uh, but he can, can transform into a, you know, obviously he's like several tons, but he can transform into a Walkman that a human can put in his pocket and, you know, doesn't weigh 100 tons like he should. It's, you know, Unicron's the same sort of thing. He is as large as a planet but then he's small enough that uh, one Dinobot is the size, is, is slightly smaller than his knuckle. It's it's a little frustrating that they're not more consistent. It's the one problem with the animation in this movie that really bothers me the most, other than some of the physics problems. It's that the variable the variable size, it's like they didn't sit down and say, okay, Unicron is exactly this big. Let's now stage every scene with him so that it's consistent. And 10-year-old me or whatever, however old I was in 1986, I would have been 11. Uh, 11-year-old me certainly didn't care I can say 21-year-old and 31 and really 41-year-old me didn't care that much, but it's bothered me more and more every time I've seen the film, and you know here I am noting it. You know, and then we sort of go back and, and RC, uh, you know, and 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 the others and, and Daniel running from the autoimmune tentacles, and RC starts shooting at these tentacles to get them off Daniel, who's tripped and fallen behind, and she breaches what must be sort of his his bloodline, or sort of his coolant line, which is water, and it sort of washes them away. Again, it's the complexity of systems that the animators and the the designers of this movie have chosen to show that makes this a cut above. And quite conveniently, Daniel, in in this sort of rush of coolant, is separated from the other Autobots, which will give him a chance later to rescue Autobots who had previously been swallowed up on the moons. For some reason, you know, Jazz and and Spike and Bumblebee have not yet been eaten, mostly because they were super popular characters and they didn't want to get rid of them for season three. But even there, there's sort of a gruesomeness to it because we see that the the, the Transformers, the robots that he has ingested over, you know, that Unicron has ingested over, obviously, you know, the, this movie, they're being carried on almost an assembly line held by clamps and they're being dropped into a vat of what I assume is molten something or other and they're being melted and they actually show you at one point one of these poor robots being melted and it's and you realize oh my god this is a sentient being who's being melted down right before our eyes and we're not just seeing a body from a distance his horrified rictus face is right there in the screen as it melts it's kind of horrifying Of course, you know he's told by, um, you know, he, you know he naturally he comes just in time to see Spike being hauled overhead and says, you know, transform, use your exosuit, shoot, sh- you know, knock down the cover to the acid vat or whatever it is, and of course he and and, and Bumblebee and Jazz and Cliffjumper are saved at the last minute so hooray for that and then of course we come back to the sort of Galvatron stalking Hot Rod through the innards of Unicron and it's neat it's it's a neat it's actually probably the best fight even though it's maybe 30 seconds long because they keep transforming back and forth you know Hot Rod is he recognizes way less powerful than Galvatron so he sort of races in in car form and rams him and then races off and you know uh, Galvatron transforms into his cannon and manages to knock out the the ground from underneath Hot Rod Hot Rod transforms and charges at him Galvatron transforms back like these are transformers you would figure that you know they they would naturally transform quite a bit uh, as they fight and this is a good one like when it when they finally wind up you know sort of neck you know like hand-to-hand combat it's because hot rod has smashed into him as a car and tra- and transforms well unfortunately with galvatron's hands around his neck and then of course just as it seems like all hope is lost hot rod grabs the matrix of leadership and it, it sort of flares up and we get you got the touch and this is sort of the hero moment and it's it's well earned i actually think this char- i think hot rod as a character earns it and it's and it's effectively framed with you know suddenly galvatron who has this immense weapon around his neck realizes oh my god i've got this immense weapon around my neck and it's turned being turned on me and hot rod sort of rips it off of him and opens it up
1: first prime then ultra magnus and now you. It's a pity you Autobots die so easily, or I might have a sense of satisfaction now. You got the touch! You got the... Arise, Rodimus Prime.
0: Optimus. He transforms, he becomes much larger and he he becomes Rodimus Prime who is essentially a what they viewed as a 2005 Big Rig, uh, who looks sort of like a grown-up Hot Rod, the same, you know, red with flames paint job, and it's, again, it's well-earned, and then this is where Galvatron realizes he is just right and totally screwed. And, you know, Rodimus Hot Rod, you know, Hot Rod now, who is Rodimus Prime, try, you know, is about to open the Matrix, but Galvatron shoots it out of his hand, at which point uh, Rodimus Prime, Hot Rod, grabs Galvatron... <laughs> And throws him clear through Unicron's skin from the inside out and off into space, and they find him. I think in the first episode of season three, and miraculously, he doesn't sound like Leonard Nimoy anymore. He's gone back to sounding like Frank Welker, the you know the sounder of uh, Megatron. But interestingly enough, he's gone insane. But you know, that's not in this movie. But it was it was interesting choice that Galvatron without the rain the reigning in that unicron has done you know Galvatron without the the restraint that unicron has put on him has gone mad and then Rodimus prime opens the matrix of leadership
1: now, light our darkest hour
0: and it's deep as he opens it in the crystal inside they never really explain what it is but whatever it is it causes unicron to literally explode. And I don't think they ever actually explained what the Matrix is, that it does this. But it literally, Unicron explodes and very coolly his head blows off his body and winds up orbiting Cybertron as a moon. And it sort of ends with him declaring, you know, Rodimus Prime declaring the end of the Cybertronian Wars, which of course it is not because the remnants of the Decepticons will... You know, in the very first episode of season three, based on the calculations of where Calvatron's body was going when Rodimus Prime threw him through Unicron, they find the you know they find him, they find him mad, and the wars are back on. But that's sort of the end of the film. It ends with this scene of Unicron's ruined head with two shattered eyes and the mouth open in terror, orbiting Cybertron as its one moon. I, you know, so very ironic, considering he's just—he's you know—he ate the other two moons that were there. Overall, this is an, an impressive film. Uh, it ends well. It's everything about this film from beginning to end is very well put together. Yes, there are flaws. Yes, there are problems. The physics bothers me. The size issue bothers me. One thing that's always bothered me about uh, this movie is that. Metal seems to crumble like like stone, and I ov- I often imagine it that you know the the metal which is so bendy and flexible when a robot is alive maybe it just becomes brittle and shatters when when the robot is damaged or dies, sort of like skin on a on an you know actual real life flesh necrotizes and turns black and and that sort of thing i don't know it's you know, maybe it was just lazy animating but everything else here is so well done and you know the the, the coloring is good and the, the shadow work is great and the cinematography and the movement of bodies is so good that i i just i'm prepared to forgive a lot so i've just watched this and you know i've seen this film oh my god it's got to be a hundred times. I mean, movies I've seen more Raiders of the Lost Ark, Clue, uh, the Star Trek movies, Amadeus, Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, I've seen many films many, many times. But this is, as far as the films of my youth, this is the most kiddie film that I watch over and over. And I do not apologize for it. I am 42. By the time you hear this, I will be 43. And I still love this movie. And I don't apologize because a good movie is a good movie. You know, the whole point of this podcast, the movies we thought were cool, is to sort of go back and reevaluate films. Do they stand up? Well, this one I think stands up. It's more brutal than I once appreciated it, but maybe that's part of what makes it stand up, that it's not a kiddie film. Earlier today, I sat down and I watched Gremlins, partially because I hadn't seen it in probably 15 years, but also because I was considering uh, doing it for the podcast. And I realized what an utterly mediocre film it is. The, The Mogwais are cute, but it's just not a good film, and it's, it's mostly a bunch of shtick with the Mogwai and eventually the gremlins themselves, and, it, you know, none of it makes sense, and it's, oh, this will be cool right now, so let's do that, and 30 seconds from now no one will remember, no one will care, so it doesn't have to be consistent. But here's a film that's trying to bridge the gap between season two and season three of a cartoon, and yes, it's all about selling toys, that's fine, but it's trying to tell a good story, and I... Like, I really, really appreciated that. You know, G.I. Joe and Transformers are kind of funny. They're made by Hasbro, and they're both very much the same way. They made toys, and they made cartoons and comics to sell the toys. Well, here's the thing. As a kid, I adored G.I. Joe, and I only sort of liked Transformers. But I didn't like the G.I. Joe comics all that much. I liked the cartoon. Transformers, I actually enjoyed the comics more than the cartoon. As an adult, the G.I. Joe cartoon, oh my God, does not hold up. It's awful like it's a real kids cartoon, but the comics hold up because they, they dealt with a post-Vietnam U.S. Army in a very, okay, not a very mature way, but in a, a mature way for the kids who are reading it. In terms of Transformers, the one I liked less, those cartoons hold up a lot better than I thought they would, and the comics weren't that great. And, you know, this movie is a good example of why it holds up, why it is still good, because the characters are interesting unfortunately in the third season you know as introduced in this movie the new characters tended to be more two-dimensional which is a shame nonetheless this is a great film i highly recommend it if for some reason you're you listen to this whole podcast and you haven't seen this film go find it go buy it or i'm not sure if it's on netflix but i'm sure you can find it somewhere it is absolutely worth your time But here's the thing, once you've seen it, you'll never want to see those Michael Bay films again because they're just dumb. Remember, there's more character complexity in Megatron on his own as well as his relationship with Starscream than there is in any character you're going to find in any of the Transformers films. So movies we thought were cool, I still think this one's pretty cool. And that is Transformers the movie. And I'll see you later until all are one.
1: You our life. Life. You, O-O-O O-O-O life. you got the touch. You You got the power.